Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so today we are continuing on with our Doubting Dawkins series, where we are going to be discussing chapters 7 through 8. And I am really excited about these chapters. Uh, What about you, Amy? Yeah, these were probably the easiest to do because I agreed with most of it. And it was really neat, just what he showed and the examples throughout creation that he brought to light. It was really fun to click on the links and look at the pictures and watch the videos. And yeah, and uh, yeah, it was really neat. You definitely, if you have the book, you've got to read these and follow the links, look at the pictures with your kids. It's fascinating stuff. Oh, it is. It's like, I just love, and this is the, the biologist nerd me, anytime when someone's like really elucidating like the mechanism behind things or showing me like the real details of how either our bodies are put together or how other animal bodies are put together. We've got a lot of good information in this chapter that we hope to bring to you. And he's trying to keep his conclusions. It's like he'll still state his conclusions, but he says, I'm not going to try to prove my conclusions. That'll be coming later. So Mm -hmm. basically all the evidence that he's presenting, ironically, I feel like would kind of go into the intelligent design camp. And before I, yeah. before I even say that, well, not before, since I just said it, now <laughs> that I've said that, <laughs> I want to explain what intelligent design is, because this is actually the... Where actually do you stand, Amy? I, I've never even asked you. Do you have something you consider yourself for, since you're not really... Biology is not your main thing. You, do you even have like a, a label that you prefer? Oh, man. And it's so tough to because I, I love the bio- biology side of things, but it's not my background. So, I mean, I'm Google searching every term I pretty much come, up, <laughs> come across. I definitely see an intelligent creator. I mean, you, you see the creator in the environment, in animal design. Any mom who currently has a, a little one that they are growing in their belly. I mean, when you click on Baby Center and you follow the week's progress and see how baby develops, I mean, you develop this love for biology that you see just how beautifully orchestrated it is. So I'm definitely in that camp as it comes to, you know, like young earth, old earth. I'm more Switzerland on on that <laughs> one. To me, there's no doubt that this is a beautifully designed world that we live in. I'll just give a little bit of an overview of maybe some of the different camps that are out there. The first two that are sometimes at odds are the old earth creationist and the young earth creationist. And so the difference between those, the young earth creationist would say that the whole earth was created, I think, six to 10,000 years ago. And each of the days in Genesis is a literal day. And basically all the animals that are specified on that day were created on that day. And the timelines in Genesis, you can track them back and see how much time we have. An old earth creationist would be someone who says that we are maybe not sure about the age of the earth, or we think it's a lot older than it used to be, but we definitely believe that God created, but we're not sure of the timeline in which he created. Right. Now, a lot of times the young earth creationists get old earth creationist and theistic evolutionists confused, Mm -hmm. but they are actually not the same thing. The difference between a old earth creationist and a theistic evolutionist is the old earth creationist says basically, it's a lot less committal, I think I'll say, 
saying that we know that God created, but it could have been over a longer period of time, and we're not sure exactly how it happened. But God is clearly the creator. And I think they usually believe that it was created, it was an immediate creation at some point, but just over how long, we don't know. Theistic evolutionists would be along the lines of just your traditional evolutionists, they call it molecules to man evolution, Mm. where it's just everything slowly, slowly progressed until you got everything. But instead of saying it was random mutation, it was that God's hand was in it the whole time and he was like slowly building. And then intelligent design, which is where I would consider myself the reason why I like it is I, f- I feel like it makes the main thing the main thing. And yeah. one of the b- beautiful things is we have young earth and old earth creationists who are part of the intelligent design movement. We even have atheists. <laughs> There's even some atheists that are part of the intelligent design movement. Like I would say the young earth that they would be arguing straight from scripture. I think that any creationists are characterized as doing that, but it's really just the young earth creationists that are doing that. I would say that a lot of times creationists in general are accused of arguing from gaps, God of the gaps, saying that, oh, because we don't know how this happened, it must have been God. Intelligent design actually has a positive argument and it's saying we're arguing from what we do know. And what we do know is we know that minds exist and we know that information exists and we know that we have never once seen information come from something other than a mind. Therefore, whenever we see information, we can infer that there was a mind behind it. And that's one of those things like we have yet to ever have anything that shows us true information that comes without a mind. And so in that sense, it's really staying close with the scientific method of arguing from what we know and then going from there. That is what intelligent design is. And that's what I hold to because it doesn't even go so far as saying, oh, we know who the designer is. That might be philosophy. That might be theology. We don't even have to go there because that's not part of the theory. The theory is just saying we are assuming that there is an intelligent mind outside of creation because you need something outside to create something inside. You can't have something inside create something. Like if I were writing a a novel, like none of the characters in the novel could have written the novel. It has to be someone outside the novel who is writing. What I think Dawkins does is he actually gives really... He's so against intelligent design, but man, I'm pretty sure I could give an entire presentation arguing for intelligent design just using Richard Dawkins quotes. In that sense, I think he sees a lot of things very accurately. He just, it's kind of odd. He'll say really accurately something just, I, I agree with all the way up until at the very last minute and he'll say, but we know it wasn't designed. So far, he keeps saying, well, we know it wasn't designed and I'll show you later. So in chapter seven and eight, we're not going to be able to give the show you later stuff. That'll come in nine, is it nine, 10 and 11? Yeah, it's nine, 10, 11. They're so connected and they build off one another that we just can't really separate them and do them justice. Exactly. So in this chapter, we're going to, I'd like to highlight just some of the really cool animals that he highlights. He also highlights something that Evolutionary advocates kind of like to poke holes at the idea of intelligent design, saying that in order for it to be intelligently designed, it has to be, in our opinion, perfectly designed. And if we find something that they don't think is perfectly designed, well, then it wasn't designed at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's proof that there's no designer whatsoever. And so I think we can have some intelligent comments to that and say, you know, I can understand where your reasoning would be coming from, but here's the reasons why either we think you're mistaken about XYZ being a bad design or why you're mistaken about 
imperfect design means there's no designer. I think that that's a pretty big leap right there to say if something's designed imperfectly that there's no designer. And it's so funny because I think of quilting. Is that's one of it was, <laughs> it was my hobby before. I know quilting. <laughs> I know. I, I promise it connects. But it's uh, a before I've never before said I, in my life. <laughs> before I started going to uh, to school and studying and everything, one of my hobbies was quilting. And I've got all these fancy rulers and cutters and all this stuff to where you can get the pieces that they're just perfect. But then you start stitching them together, and sometimes some are a little off. There's always this one patch. It's kind of this band aid to where if something's a little off. You say, oh, well, you know, that just shows that it was it was handmade and that sort of thing. But no one would say, well, okay, this this block is a little crooked or the color is a little off on this one. Therefore, no one created it. That just huh. isn't the logical conclusion. That is actually one of the things that you can tell if something's handmade is if if there's either slight imperfections or slight deviations. It's like it's only a machine that gets it perfect every time. I'm not sure that's 100% applicable as if God's painting. Oh, every yeah, no, that, that doesn't quite. But just the whole, just his conclusion that if something isn't quite right, that it couldn't have been designed. You know, you, oh, you yeah, yeah. see that on a lower scale with us. If you're making something or even if a machine's making something and it's not quite right, we wouldn't say, well, a machine, did, a machine didn't make it. We'd say, oh, well, oops, something happened. So, yep. I think you're right. So it's kind of a jump to say if there's something imperfect, then there's no designer. So we'll get into that. Let's flip to our books and open up and talk about some of the cool stuff that he references in here because I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. And that's what's some, it's so funny. I've got the book on Nook, which is great because you can just click right on there for the links for watching some videos and the pictures in the back. So yeah, like, you know, this, uh, this chapter especially is definitely, definitely worth it. Let me make sure I'm in chapter seven. Yep, I'm in chapter seven. So he kind of starts out talking about gazelles and cheetahs. And I, I kind of like this. If you've seen a film of a gazelle and a cheetah running, perhaps one of David Attenborough's documentaries, you've probably noticed how beautifully, how elegantly designed both animals seem to be. And I like how even the word designed is in italics. And I'm like, he's right. I have noticed how beautifully designed <laughs> they seem to be. He's talking about cheetahs and how fast they can run. and antelopes and some of the things that they do, something called pronking. Had, had you ever heard of pronking before? I know that was a new one for me. I liked it. So pronking means like, it's like they're running and then they just do this giant, elegant leap in the air. Actually, rabbits do this too. It's called a binky and it's when they're happy. Oh, that's funny. Um, where they kind of jump in the air and kind of twist their bodies, but the, the antelope's doing it to kind of show how fit they are. And it's like, you can't catch me. Look how strong I am. And he goes on and says, both cheetahs and gazelles seem superbly designed. Again, I totally agree. <laughs> the spine of the cheetah bends way, way back and then thrusts the other way, almost double bending, powering the legs in a frenzied gallop. Ooh, I like what he says about the heart. The heart, too, is especially large to pump plenty of that oxygen-rich blood to the muscles, frantic with effort. But quite apart from the size of the heart, the fact of having a heart at all, having this complicated four-chambered pump working away constantly is remarkable enough. The mathematics of heart pumping has been cleverly worked out. I won't even try to explain it because it's too complicated for even me to understand. How did all this complexity come about? Must it have been designed by a mathematically-minded genius? The answer is an emphatic, if surprising, no. And we'll see why in the following chapters. Yeah, and that's kind of a theme throughout this chapter, especially. It's, yes. oh, look at this amazing design. You're like, man, yeah, this is great stuff. And he's like, oh, but no, it's this total cliffhanger. Like, we'll get there. You just have to hang on. I kind of want to call this episode, uh, Don't Believe Your Lion Eyes. 
because it seems like everything it says, it's like what you observe, it seems like it's so well designed, but mm-hmm. nope, nope, no, it's not. And in fact, there's even a quote by, oh golly, which one is it? It's either Francis or Crick. I think it's Crick, one of the guys. He said that the biologist must keep in mind that everything he sees was evolved. It was not designed for a purpose, but rather evolved. Oh, you know what? That's funny. I heard that in one of my uh, one of my classes, and yeah, it, it's one of these things that you have to keep affirming because when you look at it, it looks so much like it, and they have to almost kind of retrain their brain. Is like, nope, it wasn't designed. It wasn't designed. Now I'm thinking if you have to constantly remind yourself that what you're looking at isn't what it seems to me, that seems a little counterintuitive to the scientific method of, and especially to Occam's razor. Mm. <laughs> I'll say it's like if something consistently looks like it's designed why are we the only reason to question that it's not designed is if by fiat you have already decided nope's not designed and Mm. that's a philosophical statement that's not a scientific conclusion and so they take this philosophical premise and they force it they cram it despite common sense and despite what their brain keeps wanting to tell them they cram it into the opposite conclusion and i think that's kind of a problem especially the scientific method. I don't think that's following where the evidence leads. And I think we need to follow where the evidence leads. Yeah, I would agree with that. So Dawkins continues going on. And again, I really enjoy his descriptions of how some of the things work. Like, so he's going to start talking about eyes and how intricately designed they are. But he's also going to bring up something that evolutionary biologists point out a lot, which is what they see as something as imperfect design. And so there's a lot of really classic examples. But what I would like to stress to the listeners is that anytime you find something as a quote-unquote classic example of imperfect design, if you start digging a little bit deeper, you actually discover that it's one of two things. Number one, it's, it is really good design and it does more than what we thought it did, like in the case of uh, one of the examples. Or number two, it's an example of design constraints. Design constraints are not the same thing as imperfect design. Design constraints just mean I want A and B, but I, ha- I can't have them both as perfectly as I want. I'm, one of them has to give in order to work together. Two things that are maybe mutually exclusive. I'm trying to think of some good examples. Let's say skin. We want to keep our skin moisturized, but our skin also needs to be a barrier. So we need to be able to allow certain things in through our skin to be absorbed into the skin, but we can't allow everything to be absorbed into the skin. So it's these two things. It's like, it would be nice to absorb things, but there's some things we need to filter out. These are design constraints. We can't have both of those. And so we kind of have this medium. And this is going to be what we're seeing. And what he brings up here is the vertebrate eye versus the invertebrate eye and the retina and the photocells and basically how all they work. You want to try describing that, Amy, or do you want me to? Oof, I'll do my best. What really helps, because what he does is he actually compares an octopus eye with a human eye. And maybe you've heard this example before. Um, this is kind of an example of this improper design that he sort of attests that the octopus eye is designed better than the human eye. And what I highly recommend is if you have, if you're not driving, of course, if you're somewhere where you can have access to a phone or a computer, bring up a diagram of an octopus eye and a human eye. And it's usually this black and white drawing of a cross section of an eye. And what you're you're looking at is the nerves. And so what, what Dawkins argues is that the nerves for an octopus eye actually runs along the back of the eye and goes out, which he says makes sense. Whereas the human eye, the nerves are actually, they run in front and actually go out the back, causing this sort of blind spot. 
And so he says that this doesn't make sense. Why would you have these nerds going this Can way? I give an example of this? Yes, do it. That might help make more sense. So think about hooking up your stereo system and all the wires go in the back and then they get plugged into the wall. That would be kind of a real intuitive way to design it. And that's how the octopus eye is. That the front part, the part that interacts with the light is facing front and the part that plugs into the wall is on the back so you can kind of hide the wires. That's how it is in octopus eye. So in a human eye, it's pretend that all your wires that plugged into the wall were all coming out of the front. And so basically they plug into the front, but then they have to loop around to the back and it looks kind of messy. Yeah. It's not a very intuitive design. And so there is a lot of words, lots of words and plenty of places that basically talk about how this is proof of bad design. So he's comparing the, the eye to a camera. And he says, the vertebrate eye is a camera. And I'm kind of reading like little sentences here and there. I'm not reading straight, just, you know, just to get the main idea. The vertebrate eye is a camera. It has a retina with millions of tiny light-sensitive cells called photocells. And these map uh, onto the retina in the brain. The resemblance to a camera goes further. The pupil is widened or narrowed by special muscles attached to the iris. Again, like a camera, the eye contains a lens that can be focused on near objects and then refocused on distant objects. And the change the shape of the lens itself using special muscles is basically how you can change the shape. So he starts talking about a couple other things, namely the, um, the chameleon tongue and some of the stuff on squid. But we're going we're gonna to go back to those and we're going to stick with the eye. I wish he'd put those together. So, but he says, here's another famous example of a revealing flaw. And so he's going to be talking about the eyes. The retina of your eye, it's back to front. It's the same for all vertebrates. I've already described the retina as a screen of photocells. The photocells are hooked up to the brain by nerve cells. The sensible way to hook them up is the one used by cephalopods like octopuses. There are wires connecting the photocells to the brain leave from the back of the retina in a sensible manner. So again, think about it like we were talking about. If you're hooking up your stereo equipment, having the wires go out the back makes more sense because they're not having to hook around versus having them go in the front and then having to loop around. I think we also need to look at what he uh, says here. It's the same for all vertebrates. This is something that maybe some people might not catch. In evolutionary terms, if something is the same, For all vertebrates, we know that according to evolutionary theory, the eyes, they evolved later on in the branching of the trees. So it's not like you had one eye that evolved and then spread and then then that branched and all the other organisms got eyes. You would have to have a bunch of organisms without eyes that themselves branched into organisms with eyes, again, according to evolutionary theory. So if all vertebrates have this configuration, That means if you're going to go with evolutionary theory, it would have had to simultaneously all evolve the exact same way, like multiple, multiple times. If you have something evolving the exact same way, multiple, multiple times, you cannot come up with the conclusion that that's a non-optimal arrangement. Because if, again, if we're just going on what's surviving and the ones that survive all have this configuration there is something beneficial to it. So that by itself should be a clue that he can't say this is a design flaw if they all evolved it individually. But so here, here's what he says, why he thinks it's a bad design. So how do the wires, the nerve cells leading from the photocells manage to reach the brain? They travel over the surface of the retina. Again, think of that like the wires coming out of the front of your stereo system and wrapping around, taking information from the photocells and converge on a circular patch in the middle of the retina where they dive through 
and head back to the brain. So basically you have, think about your, your whole retina, this kind of concave shape, all having these uh, nerve cells coming out, but then they all kind of wrap around to almost like, think about like a drain in the middle. They're all going to this drain that goes down the middle, which is kind of where your blind spot is in, in your eye. So the famous German scientist, Hermann von Helmholtz, who was both a medical doctor and a pioneering physicist, he said that if a designer had presented him with a vertebrate eye, he would have sent it back. So again, our question here is, is this an example of bad design? Yeah, and I think a lot of him, he kind of weighs that spot because there's that gap there. There aren't those photoreceptor cells where the sort of nerves drain into there, that blind spot. It's That's bad. Whereas the octopus, it has all those photoreceptor cells. The nerves go exactly where they're supposed to be toward the back, and that seems to benefit. So when you compare the two, they seem like one is the better design, but it's missing a key thing, and that is the environment in which those eyes are used. Yeah. And one of the other things, this is an example of design constraint. So when you have a vertebrate eye, usually it's going to be, well, I guess not all vertebrates are outside the water, but a lot of us, especially humans, we're going to be out in clear air and stuff like that. And we're actually getting a lot of, a lot of light. There's a lot of activity going on in our photoreceptors. And so it actually needs to have a pretty steady supply of something called retinol and just any other kind of nutrients in order to keep that cell alive. Cause that photoreceptor is going to be is part of a cell there. And the layer that provides the nutrients is behind, not in front. Because if we had that layer in front, it would basically block all light coming to the, the photocell. So basically, this is a way of maintaining optimal health for those photocells. It's a design constraint. So it makes more sense for the nerves to come out the back and have the part that needs to have the most nutrients supplied to it be towards the back where it can receive that blood flow. That's awesome. And I yeah. think that, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it does, but it's not intuitive at first. But again, it is a design constraint. And if you look at it just initially, yeah, sure, it'd be great if we could both have that steady flow of nutrients and we could have the nerve cells going backwards. But since we can't have both, we have to pick the one that's most important. And keeping healthy cells is more important than these tiny little, tiny little nerve fibers that really don't make it so we can't see. In fact, every single experiment that's ever been done testing. So the words that they call it is the verted versus inverted retina. So the verted retina is the one where they the nerve cells go out the back, kind of like the intuitive way. Hmm. And the inverted would be the way the, the vertebrate and the human's cells work where the wires are kind of coming out the front that seem like they're not as well. Every experiment they've ever done that compares these two different types of eyes, the one with the inverted configuration is actually a better eye. And the, the verted one, the one that makes more sense is not as good as an eye, or they can't see as well as the other one. So to say that it's, again, suboptimal design, that's not what the evidence shows. The evidence shows that the, the design that we do have that they're saying is suboptimal actually produces better results. This is kind of interesting too, because when you look at some of Dawkins' other work, he actually sort of blows this off as this not being really an issue. He says here, the photocells point backwards away from the light. This isn't as silly as it sounds. Since they're tiny and transparent, it doesn't much matter which way they point. But yet in this later book, you know, he kind of, he changes his mind almost, it seems. Well, because I think it's one of those things where if you don't dig much deeper, then it sounds like a really damning argument. But if you dig a little deeper, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. What was that quote that you said about studying if biology was a, or science was like a teacup or something like that. Yes. So this was given by 
Vernal Hels Heisenberg, excuse me, that he was awarded the 1932 Nobel Prize in Physics for the creation of quantum mechanics. And he said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. And mm. I, I love that because I think it's it's so true is when you start getting that that first look into science, it does almost seem like, okay, you know, God is at best unnecessary. Yeah. But when you really start digging deep, you see, oh no, you know, this this couldn't have just happened. Yeah. So it seems like kind of the job here is to give everybody one sip and then take away the glass, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why I think it's, it's dangerous that sometimes parents act like, oh, science, we need to keep our kids away from science. And I'm like, no, I think what we need is more science, better science, more, the more details, the better. It causes me, I remember multiple times when I was studying for my master's that I would just be reading about how intricate some of these, especially the chemical cascades within the human cell they were so intricate and sometimes they had almost like these if-then switches of like, if you have too much of this, then you go down this different path. And it was so intricate that I just got on my knees and worshiped because I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord, you must be so amazing if you designed this. You know, because even the stuff when he's talking about the camera, mm -hmm. it's not like we went and figured out how eyes worked and then designed the camera. I think we kind of designed the camera and then we're like, oh, that does kind of work the way an eye works. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I think it is. I'm not sure how good science was about understanding the eye, but it's kind of the idea of either way, if you retro-engineer something from nature, you're still retro-engineering something from nature. Somebody else came up with it. That right there, we can say the suboptimal design for the eye is actually not a good argument. This is actually just an example of design constraint and the way that it's designed is actually better than if these obvious ways had been if it had been designed in what would seem like the obvious way. Yeah, and that there's purpose for the way that it's wired. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the, the big things too, is they're trying to say that this was just sort of random and just happenstance, you know, it's poorly designed, that sort of thing. And so no, there's actually a point to this. The next example of bad design that he goes on to is something called the larynx and the laryngeal nerve. He says, my favorite example of bad design is the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The larynx is the voice box in the throat. It's supplied by two nerves from the brain called the laryngeal nerves. One of these, the superior laryngeal, is sensibly wired up directly from the brain to the voice box. The other one, the recurrent laryngeal, is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it goes down the neck from the brain, shoots straight past the larynx, the place where it's supposed to end up, way down to the chest. Then it loops around one of the main arteries attached to the heart, then whizzes straight back up the neck and finally ends up in the larynx, where it should have stopped on the way down. In the giraffe, that's quite a detour, which I can imagine, like, it's like, oh. That one's like 20 feet long, and I don't know how long it is in the giraffe, but it's probably ridiculously long. Yeah. So again, he says, once again, this is obviously bad design. So I think one of the misunderstandings here is just in the name itself. We call it the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so I think the automatic assumption is all it's doing, all it's innervating is the larynx. Mm -hmm. But we decided to look and see if that was the case. And so here's a quote from, I think it's Gray's Anatomy. And this is an article by, let me see if I, another German name, let me see if I can say it. Wolf Eckhard Lönig. Yes. <laughs> is that right? That was nice. Good job. Thanks. And here's one of the things that he says, and I'll, I'll say what it says, and then I'll try to, you know, say it simpler. As the recurrent laryngeal nerve curves around the subclavian artery or the arch of the aorta, these are the parts of the heart or things that go into the heart, it gives several cardiac filaments to the deep part of the cardiac plexus. As it ascends to the neck, it gives off branches more numerous on the left than the right side to the mucous membrane and muscular coat of the esophagus. 
branches to the mucous membrane and muscular fibers of the trachea, and some filaments to the inferior constrictor. So if we want to put this in layman's terms, it's saying that they're saying, why is it going this long, circuitous route? Why didn't it just go from the brain to the larynx on one side and brain to the larynx on the other? Well, the answer is it's not just innervating the larynx. Mm -hmm. It's innervating the trachea, it's innervating the esophagus, and it's innervating part of the cardiac plexus itself. So why does it have to be so long? Well, because the cardiac plexus and the esophagus and the trachea aren't necessarily right next to the larynx, especially the cardiac part. So it is actually performing its job. So that's one thing. Secondly, I saw an article and we'll, we'll post uh, in the detailed podcast notes that basically you, you have a second kind of design constraint going on here and that is in development. So we, we think of this as, oh, well, why wouldn't we just strap it on here and strap it on there? Well, this is treating the body like we're in a Mr. Potato Head or a Build-A-Bear workshop where you can just <laughs> kind of slap stuff on. But if you have something growing from a single cell all the way to an entire organism, and maybe some things might start out real close together, but as it's developing, it has to go in different directions before it comes back. That's a design constraint that it has to be longer maybe on one side because in its developmental stages, that's how it's developing. Yeah. So even if that were the case, it seems like, well, it's like, well, as long as I'm having to go longer, I might as well innervate these other things at the same time. So not only does it make sense from a developmental standpoint, but it makes sense from a functional standpoint, what it's actually doing. It is not just going to the larynx, even though it's called the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Did that make sense? I hope that made no, sense to non-science does. And people. You see that happen with a couple other things too. And I, I know for a while, you know, the the tailbone was kind of getting the the short end of the stick as you know, not having purpose or design or and like the appendix and that sort. But and then later it was actually shown. Oh wait, these are actually important important yeah. things that we have. Whereas this, is even it- the hip or what was it the uh, the pelvic bone in Wales was like, oh my gosh, why do yes. they have these? I'm like, do you realize how many muscles are attached to that that they would basically be kind of a blob if they didn't have their muscles to attach to that particular part. You always have to look deeper when something seems like it doesn't make sense. And this is where I think that intelligent design versus evolution, I think intelligent design actually facilitates more science than evolutionary theory. Because evolutionary theory says that doesn't make sense. Oh, it's just an evolutionary relic. See, Mm -hmm. look, evolution is true. Whereas intelligent design says, you know what, that doesn't make sense. I don't know what that is, but I am coming from the background and from the assumption that it has a purpose. So therefore, we're going to look for a purpose. And we saw this happen, say, within the most classic case was junk DNA, that we found all these pieces of DNA that weren't involved in making proteins. And since we thought the main purpose of DNA was to make proteins, the evolutionary camp hailed it as this proof that we just had billions of years of evolutionary relics in our DNA The intelligent design camp said, no, I think that everything there has some kind of function. And so far, not only have they found, I think it's like 97% of the whole DNA has function, but some of them have multiple functions. It's what you call overlapping code. And if you want to know how difficult overlapping code is, talk to a computer programmer. I am not a computer programmer, so I can't explain how difficult that is. But if you ask a computer programmer, how difficult would it be to write overlapping code? they're probably going to give you that little mind-blown kind of, oh my gosh, this like nobody can do this. And yet that's what we're seeing in DNA. Yeah. And if you are a computer programmer, if you want to put a quick little comment on the Mama Bear page to kind of share maybe some experience, like... Yes, please. Yeah, do that. We would love that because that is just, yeah, I'm not even going to pretend to go there. 
I know how to turn my computer. So those were some of the problems that you brought up. I think we had to skip through some of the more fun stuff. So let's go back to just a couple of the more fun things that I really liked in this. And that's where he's talking about the chameleon and some of the chromatophores. For the cephalopod? Yeah. So so first off with the chameleon, he talks about, this is where his specialty in zoology, I think, really, really shines. And it just helps us understand some of the complexities of different organisms in a way that we can appreciate them. So he says the chameleon's tongue has the equivalent of 300 times that acceleration, meaning the acceleration of the cheetah, but it hits or misses the fly long before it actually reaches 60 miles per hour. Yeah, so it's 300 times that speed. Once again, all looks as though it demands a designer, doesn't it? Once again, it really doesn't. And we'll see in the next chapters. And again, we haven't gotten to those yet, so we don't know. The way that that chameleon's tongue works is stored energy. Yeah, I did not know that before. I thought that was so cool. I did, I don't know what I imagined, like how he could extend his tongue so quickly before, but I did not know it was almost like your, like if your kid has a rubber band gun, how you have to like crank it back. I didn't realize that he would have that. And I thought that was so mm-hmm. neat. Yep, it says, how does this stored energy power the chameleon's tongue? The muscles around the hyoid spike do indeed provide the energy to shoot the tongue out. But as with a catapult or a bow, that energy is stored. It's stored in an elastic sheath, which lies between the muscle and the well-lubricated hyoid spike. So it's like this muscle that acts like, you know, like you said, the rubber band gun that just goes pew, you know, when it's time for the tongue to fly out, which is kind of fun. Yeah, that one there was was really neat. And he's got a great picture of it at the, for me, it's in the back of my book here where it just shows this, this uh, chameleon, how he just shot it out and he's just getting what looks to be a, a grasshopper. It's and it just shrinks him back. And he, he talks about how, you know, he doesn't really have control. Once this tongue is let loose, like it's flying. And so he just <laughs> hopes that he's getting it in the, in the right uh, direction there because it's still going to go out. There's no way for him to retract it until it's already just extended itself. So have you ever watched that in slow-mo in some of the nature shows? Oh, it's so gross. But I mean, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's cool, but it's gross. It's like, uh, and yeah, he just. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And so then he starts talking about chromatophores. So I, I like this line that he has cephalopods are about as close to aliens as anything you'll find on this planet. And I have to agree with that. So by cephalopods, he's being the prefix cephala is kind of heads, ceph, and then pods, feet. So we've got like octopi, actually octopuses is just sounds weird. It sounds weird. It sounds like grammatically incorrect. Yeah, it does. And I, you know, from, from Latin it is, but maybe it's just the like colloquial accepted now. But uh, squids and cuttlefish, all of uh, which are very weird looking, and they are totally alien. If you want to design an alien, they all kind of look like cephalopods. And a lot of the um, alien shows, like the movies and things where we're being taken over, they they do. They kind of model the aliens. It's a giant head with tentacles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a cephalopod. Anyway, it talks about these things called chromatophores, which if I could just study chromatophores for a couple years, that would be the coolest thing ever. So chromatophores... They're these cells that can actually change color. This is what you see in the chameleon where he can change color, but also in a lot of the cephalopods, they have this ability to do it as well. And he kind of compares it to, if you look real closely at your television, you can see little tiny red, blue, and green dots. And if all three are shining together, it, it creates white light. But if you need something more red, it's like the red's firing and the blue and the green aren't. And they have these in their skin. It says its whole skin is a living TV screen. The pixels are not controlled electronically, however. Each pixel is a tiny bag of colored pigment. There are three different colors, just like in the TV screen, except they aren't red, blue, and green. They're red, yellow, and brown. 
and each bag lies inside an organ called a chromatophore. The chromatophore takes on the color of the pigment. When the muscles relax, the bag shrinks to a dot because of its elastic walls, so its color becomes invisible from a distance. Because the color change is controlled by muscles, and the muscles by nerves, it's fast, about one-fifth of a second to change. The muscle contractions tugging at the chromatophores are controlled by nerves, and the nerves are controlled by cells in the brain. So theoretically, if we could hook up a squid's brain cells to a computer, we could play Charlie Chaplin movies on its skin. <laughs> that is so wild. I want that to be my dissertation thesis whatever research i'm like and today i'm going to show you <laughs> the first movie ever on octopus skin actually he tells you to, to look for a youtube which i highly recommend for we'll put it in the detailed yeah. post post it says search for insane in the chromatophores on youtube if you know that song insane in the brain insane in the membrane <laughs> which is kind of a, a fun one to do because we are literally dealing with membranes so anyway those are some of the really fun things that we got out of those two chapters, some of the really great things that I think Dawkins brings to the table from his background in zoology and especially animal behavior, but then also some of the, the conclusions that he comes to that we don't think are quite right, thinking that some things are evidence of poor design when in fact they are evidence of design constraints or they're evidence that someone didn't understand what the full function is, was of the organ. So of course it's going to look like bad design if it's going somewhere that you don't think it needs to be. But if it's actually going somewhere where it needs to be, that's what you call good design. And I uh, think that's what's so good about Lonig's article. And we'll we'll put this within the podcast notes because it, it's good to read. He's, he's pretty engaging too. It's, it's very accessible. But he even points out in one of these videos that Dawkins had posted on YouTube, which I don't know, did the link work when, when he was... No, I clicked on it. It says link had been deleted. Oh. So it might have been... <laughs> it might have realized it. Well, like, it, he had, maybe I should take that down. He had posted a YouTube video regarding the laryngeal is that, am i saying laryngeal right? yay uh-huh okay yeah. so the nerve uh, so in 2010 one of these giraffes had passed away he had actually gone on a, and he was able to be on hand when they were dissecting it and he was looking at these nerves and he and a couple other scientists were saying okay well this is this is obviously bad design because look it's going all the way down here well this article which is is so interesting is he actually points out that they actually confused some of the anatomy there. So it, it's oh. no wonder they came to this false conclusion because they misidentified some of it. Yeah, I think it was, I'm trying to think of which, uh, there was a different nerve that branches off. Okay. And they were thinking it was the one, they were calling it the one that branches off. The, vag really the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve. Yeah. yeah. They, they confused the vagus nerve for the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Yes. Yeah. And so he, he actually pointed out minute by minute, like here's, here's where some things, and there were, there were more than just that. But he was actually mm. confusing parts of it. So it's, it's no wonder that there was some confusion here because, you know, you're misidentifying some things. We'll put that in there. And yeah, he references the link a couple times. Yeah. It, yeah. Unfortunately, if it's not there, that's, it's unfortunate. But, you know, it just kind of shows some of the issues. So I think the concept of design constraints is something that you can really talk about with your children. And so something as simple as say that you're, if you're shopping for a car and you want a certain kind of gas mileage, but you also want to be able to haul stuff. <laughs> So a lot of times the smaller cars are going to have the better gas mileage because they're not having to work so hard to carry as much weight mm -hmm. versus a larger car that could haul things is going to have worse gas mileage because it's bigger. This is a design constraint. You can't have that tiny little car that can still haul stuff. So explaining how you're, uh, to your child, what if you wanted to haul stuff and you wanted to have the high gas mileage? You know, well, maybe you can't have both. This is a design constraint and start, start getting them familiar with the, the concept of design constraints that it doesn't mean something was poorly designed. 
It just meant that there's a de- design constraint there. What are some other examples, Amy, do you think would be design constraints? Well, I was, that a kid might I was thinking also of the, the example with the cephalopods. Are you talking... He mentions in there, you know, if you look really close to the TV screen, that may not be something you want to do that might fry your eyes. And I wanted, I was thinking of this earlier. Another really good example is to, if you have a microscope at home, maybe you're a homeschool parent or you have someone who has a microscope because, you know, why wouldn't you have a microscope in your home? I never had a microscope. I feel like I was like totally missing out now. Actually, my dad has one now and we like totally have fun with it. Sorry. I ended up having one from an old science kit that my mom had. Another way that you can kind of see this and it's, and it's really fun is actually just cut out one letter of, let's say, a newspaper or a magazine and put it on a file and, and then look at it uh, really zoomed up. You'll see that, you know, what looks like black or blue ink, once you zoom in, is all these little dots of red and yellow and, and that sort of thing. So it's another way to kind of look at things for that. But as Well, that would be illustrating the chromatophores, yes. but what's something that's a design constraint that you could think of? Oh. Maybe like something simple. I want something small to carry around, you know, as a purse, mm-hmm. but I also want to put my iPad in there. Well, I'm, I'm probably going to have to pick between the iPad yeah. and a small purse. I can't have both. Well, and wasn't this seen a lot when they were first developing aircraft and especially when they were trying to find an aircraft that could fly, you know, across oceans. I'm thinking Amelia Earhart and everything. You know, part of the challenge was is to, to have a, a, a small, I want to say it was like a small enough airplane with enough gas to be able to get them. So, I mean, you see... It depends on what your goal is and how you're trying to get there. You may have to compromise something. So I know aircraft mm-hmm. design, it happens there. Like you mentioned, the size of cars. I noticed that with with my Odyssey, drank a whole lot more gas than my husband's Camry. So <laughs> uh, that's another yep. easy one. I'm trying to think. I'm Nate, just going to open this up for the parents and just say, give us examples of what you've seen as design constraints where it's like you can't have everything or because something needs to work in a certain way, it needs to take a little bit more of a circuitous route than you would normally do because there's a design constraint there. Maybe the way the roads go around mountains, it's going to take a lot more than than if someone were to try to blaze a hole through a mountain. Let's go around the mountains as a design constraint, that mountain's there. Send us stuff in the comments. I'd like to hear more examples, but I think if we could really get this idea that design constraints exist and that they're not imperfections, they are just part of... This is what happens when you deal with materials because all materials are limited to what they can do. They all have properties and those properties are unique to them, which means they're not going to have all the properties, so they can't do everything. So there were all, even God working with stuff will have design constraints if he's working with material things because he's created the properties within those materials. That doesn't mean that someone's not omnipotent. It doesn't mean that that there's a design flaw. It's just the reality of working with material things. And so I think the more that we can show how we can have optimal design within design constraints, that's a category that our kids need to have in their head before they long before they get to ninth grade. They need to start getting this in their head, probably third grade or earlier, just so that when they start seeing things that are design constraints or might possibly be design constraints, they don't fall for the trick of saying, this means that it's not designed. Mm. Those would be our thoughts and kind of our parent takeaways on that. So Amy, would you like to pray us out? Absolutely. Lord, it is it is awesome to be able to study your creation because it is, it's beautiful and it's fascinating and it's just fun, uh, frankly. And it's one of those things that can really enchant our children. And I mean, they do, they love it, but it also can be very quickly twisted and sort of used against the idea of, a, of an intelligent designer. And so mm-hmm. I just want to pray over these parents who are listening that they are are just sort of inspired to go out and look at some of the challenges out there. It can be it can be so scary 
to look at some of this evidence and you think, oh my gosh, maybe, maybe what I believe is incorrect or I've been mistaken this whole time. But when you start digging deeper, you see, oh wait, no, there is an order. There is a purpose. There is a design. So I encourage these parents to, to go out and to look this stuff up. I pray for their children, Lord, that they keep this wonder about them. They have it when they're little kids and sometimes it, it sort of, they sort of can grow out of it. But I, I pray that that doesn't happen. And I pray that as they're, as they're studying this, that parents, you know, let's, let's be proactive on looking at what they're studying in their textbooks and looking at the evidence for the creator because you're there and it's beautiful. So I, I pray over them. I pray for the kids that they're able to stand firm. And I pray for encouragement too, because we've got this need for, for Christian scientists. There are a lot that are out there. Many of our original founding scientists, they were all believers too. And they use their mm-hmm. their love for you as an act of worship through scientific study. And I pray that we that these barriers, the belief that maybe science is somehow a stumbling block to, block to God is just taken down because it's not. It's, it's a form of worship. And we just are so grateful, Lord, that you have put so much evidence out there that I just pray that these parents are encouraged, that these kids are encouraged, and that when they start getting this taste of you in science that they just go full out, Lord, because it is just awesome to be able to see your evidence within the everyday. You're holding them, Lord. Amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, mama bears. We are all in this together.